Good morning. How you feeling? Good. Good. This morning we're talking about four aspects of love. And last week we began this series. And what we saw was that John is incredibly uh, convicted about the fact that the church of God or the church of Jesus should love like Jesus. That we have a call to love like God. That that love is distinct. That that love delivers. And that love will always be displayed by the acts that the church performs under submission and surrender to the Holy Spirit. This was incredibly important to John because John was someone who had experienced a dramatic life change. He was someone that when Jesus called him, he was known as the son of thunder. But upon accepting Jesus, he moved and turned from a dark and brooding and angry individual ready to fight at the drop of a hat. After having close proximity to Jesus, apprenticing with him one-on-one, he became a person who was compassionate empathetic, who cared, and was known at the end of his life as the apostle of love. And he says that this is really something that the church needs to listen to, that they'd be recognizing, because the letters that he writes here are not just affirming of the church, but he's actually writing to contend for something. He's contending for the faith in these letters that he writes in the New Testament. You see, America needs to listen to what he is saying today, specifically the American church. He has uh, a fight on his hands, whether we are aware of it or not. I'm trying to, I want to emphasize today what he's fighting for. We have always and will always have a spiritual battle going on around us. In his day, Gnosticism had made a rise within the church. It had gained influence by really key leaders teaching Gnosticism. What Gnosticism stood for was basically two things. Gnosticism was, number one, prided itself on knowledge. So like it really was proud about what it retained and those who were speaking Gnosticism were incredibly smart. They would stand behind pulpits, they would stand behind podiums and they would just tell people all the facts about what they believed and that should gain influence because they were incredibly educated. But number two, Gnostics also believed that Because the Spirit was pure and holy and good, and God is Spirit, that God could be pure and holy. But that Jesus could never be God because in the flesh, man is evil and sinful. And so because Jesus was a man, and we knew him, and he may have been better than most, maybe a good prophet, he could never be God because the pure and holy spirit of God could never be found or encapsulated in poor flesh, evil flesh. And so this false gospel was being spread throughout the church during John's day, and he's fighting to contend for it. He uses in the verses that we're going to look at today this one statement, this we know. It's in the Greek, the, word, the phrase is genosko. It means to learn, to, to observe, to know or to realize, to become aware, to be certain. And he says this is something we know. That if someone is truly of the Spirit of God, if they're truly of Jesus, then they're always going to be set apart. Their love will be distinct. They'll be willing to let the Spirit search them and reveal to them places that are offensive to God, and they'll put those aside. And they're people who, instead of blame shifting, will love just like Jesus and will go to those who need love the most. Jesus came and he lived his life amongst the least. And so he says that those who truly know Jesus, you can be assured because you'll see them loving those who are the least of us. So what is he saying? He's saying this, 
And I need us to catch this statement before we go any further. He says, you can know that someone is of God and they're only worth listening to if they do more than just talk about it. He's saying, you can know that this person holds weight in Jesus if they're submitted to the Spirit and they do more than just talk about their faith. They actually walk the walk they say that they have. You see, he says that the true love of God that changed me because I watched and I was ministered to and I was changed by the life of Jesus is evident for every believer. They've all gone through that same dramatic change. And the flesh that once you know, was enslaved to this world and held them down can come into submission and surrender when we allow the Spirit to lead us. He says that is the key to the distinction of the love of the church. The key ingredient is and will always be the Holy Spirit. So today we're going to talk about the distinction of love from John's perspective. He says selfless love is distinct in our world. It clearly separates those serving people by God's capacity to love from those choosing to love him from their own human limited capacity. This most key distinction is only available, enabled, and evidenced by those indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. So 1 John 3, going to jump right in. Verses 16 to 18, it says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Listen, direct attack on Gnosticism right there. If they, if they can preach in pulpits about the love of God but they do nothing for the least, how can the love of God be in that person? This is not someone worth listening to. He says, dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. Selfless love is set apart by his spirit. This is your first point today. Selfless love will always be set apart by his spirit. It's something that gives distinction to the church, and it was distinguished in the life of Jesus. The love of God is sacrificial. It's selfless. It stands out, and it stands out because it does more than just talk. It acts upon the truth that is beckoned by the spirit within It empowers us, it motivates us, it leads us to do things that we otherwise might not do if we're just self-consumed. You see, Jesus Christ's sacrifice for mankind on the cross was the ultimate act of love. And it literally stands alone in the history of the world. It was the single most earth-shattering event in human history because it altered eternity. It beckoned our attention and it beckons our humble adoration and acceptance, but it's also... Church, listen, our example. And it's the call that we have to die to self. His church will always show evidence of his life and love within us. When we hold more to him and his leading us than we do to our earthly possessions. He's asking us to genuinely consider today and when he's writing to this original church. How can the love of God be in someone that is never motivated to share that love with someone else. If they only stand behind podiums and talk about it, how can you really trust that the love of God is in that person if it never leads them to selflessly lay down their life, their reputation, and to serve those who need to be served most? 
Jesus said a new commandment I give you in John 13, 34 and 35. When he, amongst his disciples, did something they never expected. In fact, they challenged it. If you remember the words of Peter. He said, a new command I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Paul goes on and writes in Philippians 2 that we're to esteem others' needs above our own. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking for your own interests alone, but looking to the interests of others first. It was always God's plan to reveal himself to the world by the church's love for one another, by their unity. In fact, Jesus prayed for it in John 17. Let me ask you this. How many of you have ever experienced someone who is truly selfless? How many of you have ever experienced an act by someone that was truly selfless? The simple note that you can raise your hand shows that that was memorable. You remember that. It stands with you and it stands alone. It stands out. That's what John is trying to remind us here. The distinction of a world that is, the distinction in a world that's darkened and skeptical is selfless love that is empowered by the Spirit of God, literally set ablaze by the Holy Spirit within his church. And his love is made manifest through the fruit of the Spirit, which we read, we, we read in Galatians 5. It says, the fruit of the Spirit is first love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I need to tell us, this is not a list that we're to aspire to. This is not a list that you're to try to go, you know what, I'm not as patient as I, can, I, I, I should be, I need to work on that. No, what you need to do is submit to a spirit because there's no patience in you. The one thing that the Gnostics had right is that the flesh was evil and enslaved to this world. But the, where they missed it was the fact that the flesh can be put into submission by surrendering to his spirit. That the false gospel they taught was Jesus, the gospel of Jesus was that God was 100% God, simultaneously 100% man. And he became our example for how we're to live. The Holy Spirit is the indicator. It alone empowers us to love with a capacity that exceeds our human limits. It gives us an ability to love by his capacity. And these fruits speak to a life of surrender, sacrifice, and selflessness. When I just asked you to raise your hand a moment ago, I wanted to because I want to note that it's memorable. Selflessness is literally opposite of selfishness. It stands out. It is incredibly distinct in our world, and it's only available by His Holy Spirit. It's only real and genuine and authentic if motivated and inspired and led by Him. In our world, selflessness will constantly be questioned because in this world we've been taught to be skeptical. But I need you to get comfortable with a, real, a really important phrase, church, and that is that we have to earn the right to speak. We have to earn the right to speak. You walk in and in a moment do something selfless when you've never done that before. Do you think that the world around you is going to question your motive? Yeah. When you've been selfish to this point and all of a sudden you're selfless, they're going to question. They did that in the Apostle Paul. They did that in every... Con they did that in John, the son of thunder, who now was becoming this, this apostle of love. They're going to do it in him. They're going to do it in you. But 
When all of a sudden your life is governed by selfless acts, motivated and set ablaze by the Holy Spirit of God from heaven alone, and that becomes your new pattern, your new lifestyle, your new life in Jesus, all of a sudden the world can look at you and start to gain hope, and you can become trustworthy, someone that has earned the right, someone that they can turn to, who thinks more about them and their needs than you do your own, because, listen, in Jesus You're not looking for anything other than him to sustain you. You've already been fought for. You accept that. You trust what he did on the cross, fought for you, and continues to fight for you. So you stop fighting for yourself and you start lifting them up. You know, last week when we were talking about this and we entered this letter, John said, you know, there's a distinction between the child of God and the child of the devil. And he didn't expound on what a child of the devil looked like. Why? Because he he knew that's pretty self-explanatory. The, the fruit of the flesh, that's evident. I don't need to really expound on that. It's, you know what that looks like. And how many of you are very aware of your own selfishness? Hands. Exactly. He said, I don't need to go further. But Paul, Paul, in the same way, he said, I don't really need to expound on this, but let me just distinguish what a life in God by the fruit of the Spirit looks like from the fruit of the flesh. The acts of the flesh in Galatians 5 are sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, listen to these, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. I think it probably is better explained in the original language as those who live with this as their goal never inherit the kingdom of God. When this is their goal, but see, after self-examination, close self-examination, those who live by His Spirit, who are not seeking selfishness, that's not their goal, they're seeking selflessness, their goal is surrender to Jesus by the power of His Spirit. And that becomes the goal. And their life evidencing acts in that surrender. This is how we know that we belong to the truth. And how we set our hearts at rest in, in his presence. You see, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. Because he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And we receive from him anything we ask. Because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. The second point I want to give is a really important one. He says selfless love, not only distinct and set apart, but it welcomes the searching by his Holy Spirit in our lives. It welcomes the searching by his Holy Spirit. It is At first, and intentionally teachable, it doesn't blame shift. Now, before I read any further, how many of you have at least once in your life met someone who blame shifts? It's never their fault. Never takes ownership. It's always someone else's fault. Always some other reason for why that happened. Why selfishness came forth from me. The the psalmist said it like this in 139, Search me, God, and know my heart. This is the testimony of a true believer, one who wants to look, live, and love like Jesus. 
Know my heart, test me, know my anxious thoughts, see if there's any offensive way within me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Let me repent of that thing that you expose within my heart. How many of you have ever had God expose something in your heart and you go, ooh, that's ugly, I need to put that down. As his servants and his children, we give license to God to have his way within our hearts. We realize that nothing, as he showed us in Mark 2, is hidden from him. And we accept that we are selfish by nature. That's a natural thing. We're prone to wander. We've sung about it. We're capable of deceiving ourselves. We are prone to blame shift too, but we just sang about the power of the Holy Spirit and how that has made us free and how we, are, we have liberty in it. The only way we continue to experience that liberty is to daily allow the Lord to go, hey, search me and show me that place where I'm more prone to blame shift than to own it. Show me that place where I'm more likely to be selfish than I am selfless and have God have your way with me. So we ask him to search us and reveal said selfishness within us that we didn't even realize was there sometimes so we can repent of it, allowing him to remove it. Let me me ask you another question. Have you ever had this happen? Something happens, something takes event, and it reveals a past hurt. Something takes place that reminds you of something you experienced years ago that you thought you were healed of. But then something pricks that long ago wound or hurt and immediately feelings of hurt, anger, rage start to bubble up. Anyone know what I'm talking about? And rather, rather than it being healed, it's more an issue than you realized, more than you thought. Instead of actually allowing it to heal, you just stuffed it down further. Sought to move on and ignore it. Can I ask you, if you ask the Lord to search you and know you, do you think his Holy Spirit's going to find that? Do you think he's going to find it and expose it and bring that out? And even though you may not have dealt with it at one point and sought to stuff it down and sought to move on, do you think at some point you will have to deal with that? See, Jesus is the healer. He doesn't expect to you to live with wounds that are unhealed. He's not going to let you walk around. If you give him way and license in your life to reveal these things with scars that continue to make you um, live or respond in a way that protects self, when he goes, I already fought for you. You don't have to protect yourself. I protect you. So let me reveal anything and everything that maybe you even stuffed down. So I can show you just how whole and healed you are and just how different you now look. You may have been a son of thunder at one point, but I'm making you an apostle of love. I'm changing you, and I want you to embrace this new life. And to truly embrace it, you got to let me have your way. You see, we do not naturally love like him. We naturally bear fruit of the flesh, which we just listed. And when you feed your flesh continually, trying to... Even by stuffing down the places where you were hurt, trying to ignore it, that can still give root because it's not taken care of, it's not healed, it's still down there. And that feeds your flesh because you go, I just don't want to deal with it. When we seek our own desires, never resolving past hurts or offenses before God, allowing him to truly heal and free us from them. This is where this text, John says, your hearts condemn you. He's going, look, after the Spirit searches you, shows you, And he reveals this thing to you. 
you have a choice to either put that before him and repent and confess, or you can choose to stuff it back down. But this is what he means by a heart that condemns you. Like, when I reveal to you a place that's offensive within you, just like Psalm, Psalm 139 says, when I reveal that to you, I want you to give that to me. Cast all your anxiety, your hurt upon me because I love you. I want to heal you from it. But if you want to hold on to it and stuff it back down and act as if it doesn't exist, listen, I'm going to bring it up again. You're going to face this again. This is where your heart gets condemned before me. And the only way that you're free of it is to give it to me and repent. Now, He's talking to an audience that is both Jew and Gentile. And Gentiles were never under the law, so they would never have, you would think that they would never have a responsibility to know those things that they had done and could be convicted of. But see, Paul and John both knew something as humans. Beyond the law that existed for the Hebrew, here's what he said. You have a law that's been written on your heart and it's evident in your conscience. And when I start to reveal things in you that are deep and hurt and sinful and offensive to me and the way in the new life that I'm asking you to walk in, when I reveal that to you, when that heart gets condemned, I want you to put it before me. Don't just simply try to choke it down. You say, well, you say, well, well how will I know? He says, the conscience will reveal this to you, and it leads to my spirit convicting you. And then the acts that I talked about, the acts performed by the motivation and leading of his spirit, whether that be to repent, whether it be to act in love, this is surrender, this is a worshiper of me and not yourself. Let me ask you this. How many of you have ever had a, an offensive way, a sin, a vice revealed to you by your conscience? The law written on the heart makes it evident. And how many of you also feel that deep, hot, underneath-the-collar feeling that comes by the power of the Holy Spirit, a conviction to let that go? And you have a choice. You can either choose to love that thing more or to love Him. See, once we're aware, we can repent. John says this is how we know that someone is truly of God because... They're willing to have their sin revealed, and they're also willing to have that sin removed. Willing to be guilty, have their heart condemned, only to repent and to walk in this new way, to leave that behind. The opposite would be just as assuring of a true believer. The heart not condemning someone, as he says here, I mean, they're already pure before him. Here's the thing. He's saying there's going to be a distinction when those who get in pulpits or stand behind podiums and they tell you all the things that you need to be doing, when God, and they never, they never welcome the Spirit to scratch that conscience and allow the Spirit to convict. But if they do, let's imagine they have a moment when they do, and they do nothing with it but stuff it back down, and they don't repent of it and respond as worship to Him, empowered by His Spirit, led by His Spirit to acts of His Spirit and love. You can know that they're not of God, not truly His. Those who want to walk in this new way, want to live a life that is worthy of Jesus, want to emulate His love to the world, they have those things revealed and they willingly find themselves at altars like this or in their home, in the privacy of their own closet, on their knees putting that before God, going, God, I don't want to look like that anymore. Amen? 
How many of you have ever had this experience of the Lord where you go, I have a choice, I can hold on to it, I can let it go, and I'm, I'm just done with it? It's going to be most evident in the places where you habitually sin, where you find yourself continually held down by this vice, that you've surrendered to God a million times at altars like these, but it continues to come up. Here's what I want to encourage you in today, church. You cannot fight it. You're not better than it. You won't overcome it. The only way that it is defeated in your life is by you giving up. Going, God, I can't do this. Your spirit has already conquered this thing in me. So I yield to your spirit. I'm not going to try to fight it anymore on my own. I'm not going to come up with a list of things that I can do to like beat it down and put it into submission. I'm just going to go, God, it's too much for me. I've been at altars repeatedly with this thing. I put it before you. I can't do it. Win for me, please. Hello? You're already victorious over stuff like this. Be victorious in my life over this thing that continues to leave me darkened and downtrodden. And here's the beauty. When we do, he casts that sin as far as the east is from the west. And he no longer condemns us, no longer holds us responsible, Romans 8 says, for that sin. It's cast. Not the act, not the heart, not the mind that craves it, wants it, because our flesh wants those things. We want to feed the flesh, and we want to be that list of things I just listed. We want to be dissentious. We want to be idolatrous. We want to be adulterous. And he goes, no, look. Your mind and heart will be free of that the moment you put it before me. I'm going to cast as far as the east and the west, and I no longer, no longer hold it against you. Amen? I, maybe, maybe I'm the only one in the room that had some stuff that really needed to be cast far. And I'm free at last. And I'm glad that I have that liberty in his spirit. At one other. Amen. <laughs> Believers have been truly regenerated, sanctified, desire to know and obey God. And they want to know and follow his counsel found in the scriptures. They yield to it and give license to it over, over living with this stuff that harms us. Last point is this. I'm going to read 1 John 3, 23, 24. I'm going to give you a final point and it's going to be quick. It goes like this. This is his commandment. You believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps his command lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Hey Amen. If you haven't heard it yet, love led by the spirit is distinct in our darkened world. Love led by the spirit will search your heart and reveal the places where you still need to be healed and remove that stuff so that you can walk in new life. But lastly, selfless love is always supplied by his spirit. Your ability to love beyond your human limits and your own capacity, the things that this dark and skeptic world taught you, are overthrown and they are empowered by your surrender to his Holy Spirit. In this term, no, he uses a tense that says we believe here in this passage, like we trust on it. We have a wholehearted trust that accepts this as fact. It isn't preference, it isn't a mental leaning, it is a certainty as much as two plus two is four. He says, we will be empowered by his spirit when we yield to his spirit. That will show a selfless love in this world that will stand out in this world. 
We must be willing to be searched. We must be willing to repent. We must be willing to respond in everything we do as worship unto him. But when we do, you'll find yourself loving and living the life that Jesus did, one that emulates his life, could even be found amongst the least of us so that the world that is dark, that would otherwise walk past the least, can have hope. One writer wrote it like this. He said this, God's love is not simply a thing to be admired. It's rather the power that transfers those who have faith from death to life, from a realm of hatred unto love. Imagine that a friend is standing at the end of a pier and throws a life preserver out into the water. It turns to you and says, see how much I love you? The action will seem odd at best if you are safe on the pier. How does your friend's action embody love? But if you are drowning in the water, and your friend throws you a life preserver, pulls you out to safety, you would not need idly speculate about his motivation. And he would not even need to say that I love you because your life has been saved and you know that you are loved. Similarly, for people who know the reality of the greatness of God's love, they must experience it as love being active for them. Church, the distinction of love is the acts that the church performs that are empowered and convicted by his spirit. My question to you is this. Are we just talking about it? Or are is the life of God evidenced in us by the way we, spawn, we respond to the world? This morning I'm asking the band to come back. I'm going to say this. That we pray that through the Holy Spirit spew forth from our lives so much that it seemingly replaces all of our selfish ways. That were once there. Once evident. To a world that already lives this way. This morning, I don't think that anyone here desires to continue to be selfish otherwise you wouldn't be here but church how many times we gathered here heard the word open had a chance to respond and yet we don't repent we just stuff it down going i already dealt with that it's really not that big of a deal and god brings it up he pricks it allows it to bubble up and yet still another denial a stiff arm no response from his church listen that's not what he desires for you that's not getting healed that's not being whole that's not giving the church the empowerment that it has available to it to love at a capacity that exceeds its own that is denying the power of the spirit and this morning the holy spirit is the key ingredient it's that distinguishing factor and the truth between someone loving, truly loving, and not. So when we're submitted to the Spirit, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. The believer can and will love others with a capacity that's like God's. This morning, how many of you are grateful that, loved you, that God loved you free of conditions? And despite all of your darkness, your sin... You know you better than anyone else, your selfish ways. He loved you enough to be present, to pursue you, to seek you, and now has given you the power that by his same presence indwelling you, because you've trusted on Jesus, become his follower, become his disciple, moving from son of thunder to apostle of love through submission. It's empowering gives you the opportunity to love others with 
with a lack of limits and beyond conditions, just like he loved you. This morning, I'm asking us to let him have his way with us. Will you allow him to search your heart and expose the sin or the hurts that may still be there and repent so that you can be empowered to love others like him? Jesus, right now, simple prayer. I just ask that you have your way with us. Whether it be by the scripture preached or the Spirit's search, I pray that you find your way into our hearts, you stir in our minds, and you find a church that wants so much to look more like you when they leave this place than they came in, that they'll yield to that stirring, they'll repent of that sin, and they'll walk in the freedom they have in Jesus' name. Amen.